Well, today marks the beginning of a new season and a new year and a new era and new beginnings. Today's a season to celebrate, a time to consecrate ourselves. It's an opportunity to look ahead. It's an opportunity to ask God to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine in our church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. It was a number of months ago that I reflected upon and prayed much about where in the scriptures would we turn to look for guidance and inspiration in a season like this. And today we're going to begin a series from the book of Joshua, where we'll see a faithful God who keeps his promises again and again. We'll see a powerful God who cares for his people, who cares for his people in eras unseen and circumstances unknown to them. We'll see a powerful God who's personal with his people. It's a rich and it's a timely book, and I can't wait to see what we'll discover. And I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. Here at Grace, we're Bible people. We look at the scriptures each week for what God has to say to us. I hope you brought one with you, or you can take advantage of some extra Bibles that we have on your way in. Joshua chapter 1, the sixth book in the Bible. Now, it's important for us at the beginning, on a day and in a series like this, to situate ourselves at the beginning of the book of Joshua. One of my wife's favorite phrases, and my children's least favorite phrases, is to get situated. This usually arises in the context of schedule planning or timeliness, which is one of my wife's spiritual gifts. There's one in each family, at least one. Now, whenever, whenever we're going anywhere as a family, Letitia will often remind us that we need a few extra minutes, or, or 10, or 30, in order to get ourselves situated. In other words, to get to the gathering or to the event and to find our place. It might be a couple of minutes to park the car. It might be 10 minutes or so to get the right seats at the concert. It could be 30 minutes in order to get into the stadium or into the arena or otherwise. It's not just about arriving, in other words. We need to get situated. So if you live 10 minutes from the building, then you need more than 10 minutes to get situated. You've you got to have time to, to park and to check in your kids and to hang up your coat and to use the restroom and to find your seat. You need extra time. Some of you found that out the hard way this morning, didn't you? Ah, if only you had my punctual wife to remind you of that. You know, in a similar way, here in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, we need to get situated. The, the Israelites find themselves on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to enter the Promised Land. More on that in just a moment. But remember, they've been wandering around in the wilderness, the desert, for 40 years. And before that, they were oppressed. They were enslaved for 400 years. They had experienced the exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. You remember the story, perhaps. Back in this time, before all that happened, there were a series of, of plagues that occurred to the Egyptians to remind them painfully that God was caring for his people. The, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, as we call him, he hardened his heart and he would not let my people go. And finally, at one point, 
when he permitted the Israelites to leave, the exodus, Pharaoh reneged right away on his claim and had his army corner the Israelites. And in the nick of time, God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could pass through and in hot pursuit were the Egyptians swallowed up again by the Red Sea. That's not a story, that's history. We believe that that actually happened. But because of some, some grave disobedience on the part of Moses and those of his generation, stubbornness in their hearts toward God, they were not permitted to enter the promised land. Instead, Joshua and a new generation would see the land for themselves. And here they stand on the doorstep of that reality of the promised land. Now, while it's not without dispute, the the best scholarly estimation of the Exodus is in the year 1445 B.C., before Christ. So if we minus... 40 years from that, where they were in the wilderness, we get about the year 1405 B.C. for the events here at the beginning of Joshua. And Joshua records in great detail how the promise of God was fulfilled. How this ancient covenant that God made with his people would find fulfillment. And in writing this book... The people are reminded of their need for God, memories of the past, needs in the present, and expectations for the future. Now, there are several popular misconceptions about the book of Joshua. One is it's just a story about this man named Joshua who was courageous and godly. Another is that the book of Joshua is a series of military conquests recorded for us to read about. Both of those are true, but neither of those is the point of the book. This is. The book of Joshua is not ultimately about Joshua. It is about God. God is the hero of the book. And that will be important for us to remind ourselves of again and again through this series this winter that God is the hero of the book of Joshua. Joshua Joshua shouts at us about a faithful God, a God who, who keeps his promises, who shows his power, who offers his presence with his people. Along the way, we're going to see a number of interesting, fascinating things about the land, about the covenant, about obedience, about right worship, about godly leadership, about rest. But God's the hero. The awesome, holy, wonderful God, Yahweh, is the hero of this book. We're in the sixth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, called the Pentateuch, so foundational for the children of Israel, And now we're about to enter the promised land, the book of Joshua. I hope you found your place there in the scriptures. We're going to look at the first five verses of Joshua 1 and three key links to help us make sense of this. You can follow along on the back of your worship program. First of all, God presents his people with new life realities. New life realities. We read there in Joshua 1.1, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide or assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, immediately we're faced with a, a number of questions here, three of them primary. Who is Joshua? Who is Moses? And what of this new call to follow Joshua? Let's start with Moses. 
Abraham was the great patriarch found back at the beginning of Genesis who received a special promise for his descendants. King David came hundreds of years later, the esteemed king of the Israelites. But in the middle of them, we find the person named Moses. A little history refresher for you. Moses was the little baby who was placed in a basket. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court, Egyptian. Moses encountered the burning bush. Moses stood up as an adult to the opposition of Pharaoh. Moses led the people in the Exodus and across the Red Sea. Moses met with God at Mount Sinai. Moses saw the fire and the cloud. Moses spoke to God on behalf of the people and from God to the people. Moses pointed to the promised land. In other words, Moses was a unique leader and figure for the Israelites. What about Joshua? We might look at this and say, hmm, this is the first time Joshua is mentioned in the Bible. No, it's not. Moses is named as a special assistant, excuse me, Joshua is a special assistant to Moses in the book of Exodus. In fact, Joshua was a general in the army. Joshua was one of the spies recounted in Numbers 14. Remember, there were 12 of them, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were good spies. They saw the good land and reminded the people that God was with them. And Joshua was designated as Moses' successor. There was succession planning going on. Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. I like the way uh, Warren Wearsby outlines the, the story of Joshua. There's Joshua the slave. He was oppressed like his fellow Israelites by the Egyptians. There was Joshua the soldier who was in the army. There was Joshua the servant. He was a vital assistant to Moses. There was Joshua the spy. He was part of the HIA, the Hebrew Intelligence Agency, checking out what was in the land. And then there was Joshua the successor to Moses. You know what Joshua means? Joshua means the Lord saves. Yahweh, Jehovah saves. It's actually the Hebrew word for the word Jesus that we encounter in the New Testament. And that's important because Joshua forecasts a greater deliverer, namely Jesus Christ. But there's a third question here, and perhaps a little deeper. And it arises from a very simple sentence in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Simple words, profound effect here, because this divinely designated leader of God's people, the one who received the commandments, the one who led them out in the exodus across the Red Sea is dead. And questions must have filled their minds. How do we go on? How will God lead us? And a million other questions. In short, when a great leader dies, what happens in those, what happens to those who are left? Let me ask you a couple of related questions, maybe connecting with your experience in your life. What happens in the hearts and in the thoughts of people when a person or a place or an experience is in the rearview mirror? What kinds of thoughts, what kinds of emotions, what kind of fears 
do people have? Let me ask you a second question. What happens in the hearts or the thoughts of people when a new person or new place or new set of experiences stands right in front of them? What kind of thoughts, what kind of emotions, what kind of fears are in people? Let me make it personal. Think back to perhaps a substitute coach who took over your team when the actual coach was sick. Think back in your experience or one that you've heard when there was a replacement parent, a foster parent who came in when the original parents were no longer able. Think back to the first time that you went into the doctor's office or the dentist's office and the new person, the young person, had taken over because the original one had retired. How did you feel? Maybe you think of a new worship leader who, who stepped up after the only worship leader you've ever known had stepped down. What about the new pastor who came in when you never thought that anyone could follow this one? Can you imagine the feeling? Have you, have you experienced that reality? Here it's permanent. Here's why I say that. Moses hasn't gotten sick. Moses didn't fail. He didn't pursue a transition. He didn't retire. He didn't step back. Moses is what? He's dead. There's no more Moses to follow. And now it's Joshua, the one that you've seen, but you've never seen in this role. And here's God calling you to follow him. Do you follow? And if so, how? And what goes through Joshua's mind as he thinks about all of this, despite all the preparation he's received, he probably asks himself, can I do this? H how do I step up? And will anyone follow? One of the reoccurring themes throughout Scripture is that God's plans will succeed. Amen? But he uses a train of people to accomplish them. In other words, no one is indispensable, and no one is permanent. God chooses his people. He equips them for service, but it is God who directs and determines what happens. His people, his servants, his leaders, they come and they go. But as Wearsby says, well, God buries his workers, but his work goes on. And if that's true, that affects how we view others and how we view ourselves. Second point, God gives commands for his people. Namely, get ready to cross into the land. Now, if you know anything about the scriptures here early in the Bible, you know that this isn't the first time that this command has been given, this promise has been declared. We, we see something similar back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. God has been preparing his people for this new leader, Joshua. He's been preparing them for this expedition for quite a while. And now the time is here. We might say it like this. D-Day has arrived. It's time to move. And before we assess this command given to Joshua and the people, we need to understand what this land is all about. The, the, the text here makes it sound as if it's very significant, and it is. The promise of the land. By, by one person's count, one person's reckoning, in the book of Deuteronomy alone, the repetition of this 
pledge that God gives to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants is repeated 69 times. Do you think it mattered to God? And that's just one book, not saying anything about Numbers and Leviticus and Exodus and Genesis. This promise of a special land given first to Abraham and to the descendants, the Hebrew Jewish people, came way back in Genesis chapter 12. And this land, it fulfills this promise to the patriarchs and to their descendants. And it belongs to them as they accept and as they obey the covenant. Here's how it reads, Genesis chapter 12, perhaps you've heard it. The Lord said to Abram, his name at the time, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And there are variations all through these early books of the Bible with that common theme. Here in Joshua, if you look there in the first few verses, that the dimensions of the promised land are outlined. And based upon what we read here, it includes what we would call geographically the modern state of Israel and the Palestinian territories and part of the Sinai Desert and parts of Lebanon and Syria today. And it includes a variety of topography, the way the land looks, and some very picturesque, very fertile areas. In fact, the promised land is described as the land flowing with milk and honey. And, and though those things were legitimately, concretely there, the, the phrase has to do with the lavishness of God, the abundance, the variety, the blessing. The, the promised land was meant to be a physical place that invited the blessing and the richness of the Lord. It was a place for rest and peace and shalom. And God's people had waited for it for a long time. And even if they had heard of these predictions, these promises forever, I'm sure there were times when they doubted it, when they had forgotten it. You know, human nature hasn't changed much, has it? The longer we wait for something, the easier it is to forget that it's been promised. I'm pretty sure that many of these Israelites said, it'll never happen. God's probably forgotten. It was a dream back then, and it's a dream today. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, God tells Joshua now, the time has come where seeing is believing. The promised land is here. Get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land, he says. Joshua, prepare yourself and prepare these people to go. Many of us have flown on an airplane before. Some of us have flown internationally. Some of those have flown into places, into uh, countries and cultures that are unfathomably different than our own. When we fly, there's a time in which all of the preparation of tickets and of transport and of check-in and of security, it all reaches its conclusion. There's a time when we hear over the loudspeaker, prepare for boarding. And for most trips, especially 
the international variety, it brings this level of anticipation and adrenaline rush that's hard to describe. Some of you know it. That's especially true when the destination is completely unknown to the traveler. I remember the first time that I traveled to Africa. It was the spring of 2008, which is about 11 years ago. And I was part of a team of mission leaders and pastors from North America traveling to the Central African Republic, the CAR for short. Now, many times here in North America, we hear the word Africa, and we conjure up a variety of images and realities, expectations, most of which are patently false. There's a continent, yes, called Africa, but the level of diversity there is enormous. Geography and wildlife and customs and religions and, and size and skin color and economic level, and the list goes on. There's no monolithic Africa. There's great diversity of life and great diversity of circumstances on that continent. That said, the CAR, Central African Republic, is one of the poorest, and by Western standards, one of the least developed countries on that continent. I remember the first time when I uh, was sitting in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, ready to board a plane for Bangui, Central African Republic. Some of you have been there. And in that waiting area, in that airport, I had this recurring thought, Mike, you're not in Kansas anymore. And that's after having lived in a multicultural city like Berlin for a decade. Prepare for boarding brought about a whole new level of experience. And I remember sitting on the plane from Paris to Africa, Bangui, next to Dave Giles. Dave's the executive director, was and is, of Encompass World Partners, um, a partnership that our church has with that mission agency. And Dave and I had done some traveling in the past together to places like Turkey, to uh, Thailand and Cambodia and Southeast Asia. And at one point in the flight, I wondered aloud, foolishly, whether the economic level in the Central African Republic would approximate what we had experienced together in Cambodia. And when Dave heard that, he laughed heartily. He said, having been to the Central African Republic a number of times, Mike, for Americans, this is a whole other world. And he was right. See, until I arrived, I had no idea what to expect, where, what I was entering. But there was this sense of excitement and, and apprehension that was strong in me. When Joshua and the Israelites heard, prepare for boarding, my guess is that their thoughts and feelings were similar. Here we go. Prepare to cross the Jordan. Prepare to enter the promised land. Hear the promise of God said so many times for so many generations was about to come true and they had reached the point of no return. The prize of this land would soon be their reality. And this land was a gift, but Israel had to possess it. There's this balance of divine sovereignty and human responsibility that complement each other. They weren't antithetical. They didn't work against each other. They had to take the land. They had to possess it. It called for action on their part. But they didn't know precisely how this was going to occur. There were unknowns, in other words, ahead of them. And humanly speaking, there were some reasons for anxiety. But divinely speaking, there was no reason to fear. 
because God was God, and he had promised, and God would deliver. Now, now God hadn't given Joshua an explanation of how everything would take place, because, as Wearsby says, God's people live on promises, not on explanations. Write that down if you're taking notes. God's people live on promises, not on explanations. And in our lives, we would do well to embrace this. God calls for our trust, and he calls for our obedience, and he cares for the details, and he cares for the success. Third point, God offers promises to his people. You see, God doesn't just call us to obey. He gives us reasons to obey. And of all the reasons that we ought to obey God, his character and his promises rise to the top. And in this passage, we, Joshua, I should say, receives at least three promises. First one, possession of the land. Verse 3, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Or in the ESV, says literally, but quite vividly, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. If you step on it, it's yours. What does this promised land mean? It means a place to dwell, a place to prosper. It's a place that you own with your mortgage. You don't rent with this unpredictable landlord. It's a place where you're expected to put down foundations. It's not a place where you're going camping. It's not a place where you need suitcases. You have a permanent place to live, a place to prosper materially, a place to harvest plentifully, a place to rest with security, and a place to boast about confidently. In other words, this place offers wealth and, and food and security and status. And if you were the Israelites and you had just spent 40 years wandering in the desert and you had spent 400 years being oppressed, do you think you are ready to settle down? I should say so. This was God's promise of a future reality. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here, don't miss the connection here. We too are promised a permanent home, a refuge, a, a prosperity, a security, a royalty. But it's not going to be found in this world. As Peter reminds us, we are aliens and strangers in this world. We're waiting for what God has promised us. Never confuse this world, this life, can I say it? This building or that one as the promised land. For believers, we're just a passing through, but with a mission to pursue. Possession of the land, second promise, assurance of protection and victory. Verse 5, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. God wanted to teach Joshua some higher math here. God plus any person or any nation is a majority. There's no leader, there's no army, there's no people, there's no coalition, there's nothing that will be too much for the Israelites. The resistance would be futile. The opposition they would encounter, it would fail. The claims and the taunts and the ridicule that they would face, it would be exposed. God's people would win the day, and God's people would claim victory. There would be peace to enjoy and peace to claim. Doesn't God say something similar 
to followers of Jesus today? Didn't Jesus utter similar words to his people? He says in Matthew chapter 16 to one of his first followers, Peter, and I tell you, verse 18, that you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock, this confession of Jesus as a Messiah, as the Son of the living God, I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, will not overcome it. You believe that? Third promise, the presence of God. Verse 5, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You know, of all the things that were most powerful, most precious to this new leader, Joshua, I'll bet this one took the cake. God was going to be with him just like he was with Moses. Remember, Joshua was there. He, he had seen Moses stand up to the Pharaoh. He had seen Moses lead the people in the Exodus and through the Red Sea. He had seen Moses ascend Mount Sinai and descend from it after meeting with God. He had seen God protect him from the outcry and the threats of the people. He had seen God lead Moses through the wilderness. Joshua saw a faithful God and a present God with Moses. And now God promised, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you, he said to Joshua. Joshua could count on God's presence. He could count on his power. He could count on his provision. He could count on his protection. You see, Joshua heard that he was in good hands. He was in God's hands. He was in permanent hands. Don't miss, again, the similar wording that followers of Jesus Christ here in the New Testament. The Son of God, the resurrected one, Jesus Christ, said these words to his first followers, and they're still valid for us today. Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority, Jesus said, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You want power? You want authority? I've got it. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Wow, Lord, that's big. Can we do that? What's he say? And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Catch that last sentence? Sounds an awful lot like what God said to Joshua and his chosen people way back then. And Jesus Christ reminds us who follow him that his divine presence with us is guaranteed in this superhuman task of making disciples of the nations. Unlike Joshua and those people, we do not go into the land to possess it. We go out into the world to profess it, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God's presence permanently goes with us. See, God's promise here was a real promise. It was made to a real man, to real people, for a real conquest. But it also foreshadows what God is doing today. As he calls his people to himself, and he places them under the rule of Jesus.
And having led this conquest, as one pastor reminds us, Joshua was a type. He was a, a forecasting of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who is the great captain, who has conquered not a passing earthly kingdom, but sin and sin's horrible offspring, which is death. And all Christians, every Christian, enters into the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us. And how do we display that? We display it by proclaiming it to the world and inviting people to follow him just as we do. We don't conquest by imposition. We invite by proposition. Follow King Jesus. Jesus is the victor, and you can be too. See, the dominant point of the book of Joshua is that God is faithful to his promises, made long ago, and the same God who kept his promises then keeps his promises today. Times are different. Circumstances are different. Cultures are different. Our enemies are different. But the same God of presence and power and promise is our God today. Do you believe that? He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the promise maker and he's the promise keeper. And that's wonderful news for anyone today who entrusts their life to him that God will carry out what he has claimed. God will complete what he has begun. Even in the most difficult of circumstances. Let me ask you as an individual, maybe you're in the middle of a wilderness right now. Maybe you're unsure what the circumstances of your life will be. Remember this God. He's a father. As, as witnesses to Jesus Christ, we're tempted to wonder, will God give me the words? Will God give power to proclaim him, as Jesus called us to? Remember that same Jesus who forgives sins, who gives new life, who's a savior. As a church, are we ever tempted to wonder how things will turn out? Are we ever tempted to think, uh, wouldn't it be better if we were back in that time, back in that building, back in those circumstances? Does the future ever concern us? Remember the early church who saw Jesus ascend and disappear from their sight and wondered what in the world, only days later, to have the Spirit of God descend in power at Pentecost to lead them to the ends of the earth. And we are their followers. See, God calls us to action. He calls us to trust Him. And He calls us to follow Him. He will be with us. But again, we're reminded that God's promises are prods, not pillows. That They're meant to spur us to action. They're not meant to tempt us to kick back in comfort. That They're meant to assure us of the outcome. They're not meant to entice us to convenience. When God blesses us, he does so so that we can be a blessing. When, when God provides for us, he does so so that we can be generous. It was very easy for those people back then, the Israelites, to see the land as a destination rather than a launch pad. But they were called a mission. Perhaps it's easy for us as a church to see this building or that building 
in a year as a destination, not a launch pad. But you and I, if we follow Jesus, are called to mission. Remember, God provides and blesses us so that we can be a blessing, so that we can be generous. Let's thank him on a day like today from the bottom of our hearts. Let's celebrate what he's done, and then let us invite other people to what God is doing among us and through us. We invite people into a movement, not to a monument. Monuments turn into mausoleums. It's where dead people are. Movements are missional by nature, and that's the nature of our God. God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his people because he keeps those promises even as settings and circumstances change. Which means for us, Grace Polaris Church, we've been given an opportunity. It's a season to celebrate. It's a future to pursue. It's a time to move. And that's why today I'm so excited. And I say, church, let's go. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a promise-keeping God. And we thank you that you're a God of power and a God of plans, a God of protection, a God of presence. And on a day like today, in a season like we find ourselves, we claim those promises, God. We need you. And we bank on the fact that you're a faithful God. I pray that you would find us people of joy, people of gratitude, and people of service. We don't know how long we have. We don't know how long you will tarry. But we want to be busy about the things that matter most to you, and we want to use with glad hearts the things that you've given to us. Thank you for the example of Joshua and the Israelites. But most of all, thank you for your example, for you make promises and you keep them. And we count on them for our season and for our time as well. God, go with us and help us to go with you as we follow that kind of God who leads us forward. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.